listening to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. This is uh, the last week of Build This City. This is week nine, ladies and gentlemen. Come on. You've been seeing this graphic for some nine weeks now. <laughs> so, brilliant graphic. And I, I, I mean, I don't know how many of you have been tracking with us and following the sermon series, but I actually have all our topics listed. And so this is all that we covered, ladies and gentlemen. Come on. Boom. Yes. Look at that. Look at that. Come on. That's a lot of topics. The first week, we talk about family. Second week, we talk about worship. Talk about joy. Talk about Holy Spirit. Talk about integrity. Talk about forgiveness. Andrew spoke about evangelism. I talked about hospitality the week after. I think that's pretty much the whole Bible. You know, I don't know if I can squeeze out anything more. <laughs> but yes, week nine, come on. Nine weeks, yes. And so I um, want to ask you, to, you know, if you missed any of uh, the sermons or do tune into a podcast, I have a little write-up done. If you don't like to listen to my voice and rather read, uh, I have those write-ups done for you as well. And so this series, you know, the, the whole heart behind this series is uh, we are examining and we are looking into the foundations, uh, the fundamental things, what makes the city the city, amen? Yeah. Come on, this is who we are as, as a church, you know, and I don't profess to be able to cover all the intricacies and all the different dynamics that makes us a city, but this is a pretty good attempt, a pretty good first attempt, and we'll try to do it once a year, we'll try and do it once you know, every now and then, and we'll talk about what makes us the city, what defines us as a faith community, amen? And today, you know, I, I want to end off this series uh, pretty interestingly. You know, uh, over the last few months, you know, we've uh, released a, a couple of uh, statements. You know, um, some of you might prefer the term vision statement, mission statement, and uh, who you are statements. And, and these statements, you know, they, they pretty much sum up and define who we are and what we're about. And one of those statements is this, you know, that we exist for this reality in our city as it is in heaven. Come on. Sorry, my mouth is a bit dry. Just relish in that statement. Just ponder on that statement for a while. We're good. In our city as it is in heaven. Come on. How many of you believe that that can be a reality? Yes? It is the desire of the Father. That desire is captured in a prayer we all know. It's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the desire of the Father for heaven's realities to be made present on earth. Amen? And we are, we are basing this statement on the belief that the more we endeavor to express heaven in our community, in our families, the more we'll see heaven's realities take place in our community. Amen? And in heaven, where there's no sickness, there's no pain, there's no disease. And that's what we believe God can do and will do in our faith community as we pursue the mandate of bringing heaven to earth. Amen? Yeah. That's what we exist to. Come on, are you excited for that? Yes. In our city as it is in heaven. Yeah. Tell you, man. Try to come up with a better one. That's, 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 that's pretty much all, all, all that is. You know, and, uh, one, and uh, a mission that we have uh, embraced uh, over the last few months, you know, it's, it's this, you know, we are in the city for the city. You know, as a church, we are not insular. We're not just about running our own programs, but we exist to make an impact in our community, in our nation, and in the nations of the world. 
Amen. And so we have different initiatives. We have Alpha that's coming up. We're going to run a prayer house here. It's coming up, I promise, really soon. Uh, we have missions trips that are coming up. We exist beyond ourselves, beyond our Sunday service. Amen. We are in the city for the city. Amen. So I hope that you can remember these two statements. If somebody asks you, like, what is the city church about? Or what, what is church? You know, what do you guys do? What are you about? You can articulate these two statements that we, are, we exist to bring heaven's realities on earth in our city as it is heaven. And as a church, we are in the city for the city. Amen? Simple, yes? Today, I want to talk about how do we get there? I know these are really big, grandiose, you know, outlandish statements. But today I want to talk about how we can get there. And today I want to release something. I, I, I don't have the name firmed up yet. You know, this is still trial. If you have a better name, you can suggest it to me. But I want to release something I call our passion statement. Ooh. Nice. Thank you. Our passion statement. This is a statement that... that you know, captures what we burn for. Our passion. What we burn for. And today, I, I, I believe that this passion statement is going to trust us into the next season of our church life. Amen? You know, um, it's, it's so funny. It's almost like uh, I feel like I'm ending the series with a start point. But that really is what this series is about. You know, I, it's all about building foundation so that we can build higher and further and go longer. Amen? That's what we're we are doing this morning. We are releasing our passion statement. And this is a start point to our journey as a church. Amen? To our next season as a church. Are you with me? Yeah. The word for church in the Bible is the word ecclesia. And uh, ecclesia has uh, multiple meanings. But one of the meanings I, I really love about this word ecclesia is ecclesia means the called out ones or the sent out ones. And that is what the church was described as. The church was described as a people who were called out, who were sent out on a mission for a purpose. And so that would suggest to you and me that church, you know, isn't really a monument. It's a movement. Today, you know, we often talk about church and think about church as buildings, as sanctuaries. Sure, valid. But church in its inception in its original meaning, it's a movement of people called out, sent out on a mission and on a purpose. How many of you know that though we gather in a church, but in reality, you are the church. You are the church called to bring God's realities wherever you go. Amen? You know, we explored this verse uh, the first time, you know, we, the first sermon of this series that, where uh, the, 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 there's a verse that goes, you, know, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. You know, all familiar with this passage. And something really interesting that I've discovered in my research is that the word, the name Peter, okay, is the Greek word Petros. Everybody say Petros. And Petros would loosely mean a stone or a pebble. And it goes like this. You are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. And the word rock in this original text is the word Petra. This is what Petra is. Petra is a formation made up of many Petros. Petrosuses. Many people. How many of you know that the church is not meant to be built on the back of one individual, but it's meant to be built on the backs of a community of people? 
I'm not the church. We are the church. Are you with me? You know, we're all familiar with uh, a set of uh, passages in Matthew, Matthew 5 to 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody familiar with that? Read your Bible? Awesome. Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. Some on the mount, you know, uh, how many of you are familiar with that, yes? Yeah. No, you, you, you've heard it said, da-da-da, but I tell you, da-da-da. You've heard it said, da-da-da, but I tell you, da-da. That's really long, I'm not going to read all that. Well, one of the things we realize as we explore scripture is that the English language, as amazing as it is, it's limited in its meaning and it's limited in its ability to articulate concepts in scripture. If you read it in its original text, you realize that every time, okay, the word you is mentioned, short of two passages, it doesn't mean you in a singular sense. A great translation of that word you would be y'all. Y'all, you know. English word doesn't have a plural you, you know. It's y'all. Y'all heard it said that thou shalt not murder. But I tell y'all, takes a different spin, right? It's no longer a command directed to select individuals, clergymen, gung-ho Christians, but the commands of Scripture apply to all of us, all of y'all. Amen? You don't get to exclude yourself from commands in the Scriptures because you you deem yourself as less passionate or less gung-ho or not called to the ministry. The commands of Scripture, the exaltations of Scripture, the admonitions of Scripture, they apply to all of us because here's a simple truth, a simple fact. We are the church. All of us. Amen? And with that, as a launch pad, let's look at a passage of Scripture. Let's look at Matthew chapter 3. Are you with me? It goes like this, yo. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent! for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who has spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Catch this. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And this passage, you know, we'll probably read it a bunch of times in our reading of the scripture. You know, it's at the front of Matthew. And so in your attempt to read the Bible, you'll probably chance upon it before you give up halfway. But yes, Matthew 3. And this is a prophecy from Isaiah. And Here's a fun fact, you know, this prophecy occurs in all four Gospels. All four Gospels. And if you know anything about New Testament scholarship, you know that that is a rarity. That doesn't come really often. It appears in all four Gospels. And the word for prepare the way, the word the way, is the Greek word hodos. Everybody say hodos. Hodos. Let's have that. I don't know how to read that pattern thing, but, you know, I just thought I'd put it up to look smart. Hodos. The word for the way is the word Hodos. And hodos would translate to mean way, path, road, journey. But over time, this word hodos became a word picture for a way of life. Everybody say a way of life. It's a journey or a road that you and I take to grow into a set of behaviors, practice, and beliefs that will make for a good life. That's what the word hodos means. It used to mean way, road, path, but today it means journey. It means a path of life. Amen? And this word is used a staggering hundred times in the Bible. And 62 of those hundred times, it's used in the gospel. 
in relation to Jesus of Nazareth. Come on, that is staggering. Let me prove it to you. I have a couple of scriptures up. Matthew goes like this. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road. Hodos that leads to destruction and many enter through it. Next slide. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and you teach the hodos of God in accordance with the truth. Next one. Familiar. You know, we know it from a song. Jesus answered, I am the hodos and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Hodos. Everybody say that again. Hodos. Hodos. Beautiful. If you read uh, the book of Acts, you'll realize that all through the book of Acts, you know, up to the midway point, believers of Jesus, Christ followers, disciples of God, were referred to as followers of the way. Followers of the Hodos. Followers of the Hodos of the kingdom of God. They were known as followers of the way. Let me prove it to you once again. Scriptures. Acts chapter 9 verse 2. Saul asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way. Come on, that's a name for a good church. The way church. Then people ask, what church go to? The way. No way. No. Okay. <clears throat> Track with me, brothers and sisters. Acts chapter 19 verse 2. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Next one. About that time there rose a great disturbance about the way. Come on. That's my favorite one. I sense a great disturbance in the way. But I, I, I won't even go to the rest, but I persecuted followers of this way. Rest Star Wars, you know, the kingdom is Star Wars, you know, it's all. It's there, you know, you can find something like that. Christ followers are known as followers of the way. As people who partook in the belief and the practice of Jesus, not just as a person you believe, but as a way of doing life. This would suggest to us that Jesus as the way isn't just a way to life, but it is a way of life. How to live. The way is the way God intended for human beings to flourish and thrive. This way is not just a set of ideas that we commonly associate or know as biblical theology. It's not just a set of do's and don'ts we commonly understand as ethics, but it is a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle. And this lifestyle or way that we've been talking about, it's way of life, this adherence to God's kingdom, submission to the way He sees life, the way He does life. The New Testament writers calls this lifestyle discipleship. Discipleship. I know the energy level of the room just dipped because discipleship is a cuss word in some circles. No, it's true. Discipleship may bring up some negative experience for you. Amen. How many of you are recovering experiences of ex people who have experienced discipleship? You know, recovered from that. You know, maybe you were yelled at. Maybe you were like pinched a bit. You know, Christine pinched me. No, Christine's not here. <laughs> it may bring up some negative experiences for you, right? And uh, here's here's something I've noticed uh, over my long career in the church. Uh, glorious three years. Um, one of the things I notice is that whenever the church experiences something that has been abused, 
the natural reaction is to take what ha that has been abused and throw it out like a baby with the bathwater and to neglect that which was abused. Think of uh, the, the prosperity gospel. You know, we know of people who go up on televisions and say like, give me your money and God will richly bless you. you know? And we've seen uh, such a, in my, in my opinion, an evil twist on what prosperity really is. You know? And people have used scriptures and twisted scriptures in order for their own personal gain. And the reaction of the church to that you know, almost uh, uh, that, that whole camp is, well, now all of you don't get to prosper anymore. Money is bad. Spirituality equals to you are poor, you live very simple, you have nothing to your name, spiritual. And that has almost been the reaction to every theology, every camp of doctrine that has been abused or twisted. The church would throw the baby out of the bathwater. That making sense? But I'd like to suggest to you uh, just a really simple uh, fact. Just like we don't heal an abused child through neglect, we don't heal an abused truth through neglect. Just like we don't heal an abused child through neglect, we don't heal an abused truth through neglect. Winston Churchill said this, truth is so precious that she is always surrounded by a bodyguard of lies. Whenever something is abused, misunderstood or twisted, all the more I'm charged to press in to discover what is truth as God intended for it to be. And discipleship is one of these, one of those matters that we are called to press in and discover and not just throw it out. Maybe you've experienced some really tough environments, you know. And to you, discipleship is legalistic, it's religious, it's so obstructive, it, it restrains. I don't feel free. But all the more when the truth is abused, when it's twisted and used for personal gain, we are called and admonished to press in to discover what the truth is. Amen. Now, discipleship is a word we often associate to statements like, I don't get to live anymore, I have to die, etc. You know, uh, There's a great scripture that goes, you know, if any desires to be my disciple, they have to pick up their cross and follow me. And uh, discipleship is often thought of with a great cost attached to it. Am I right? Follow me, yes? To some extent, that, that is truth. That is true. I do not refute that, but what we've often been guilty of, guilty of is that we have never talked about the reward of discipleship. Discipleship as God intended for it to be was meant to be the most fulfilling and life-giving experience you will ever have. Jesus, all through Scripture, seems to suggest that following His way, being yoked to Him, being discipled to Him, is a way to experience life and life in all its fullness. Scriptures... Next slide. Oh, there we go. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, he has eternal life and will not be judged. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus seems to suggest that his way, being yoked to him, is a means of access to this abundant, eternal life. 
He has life on tap. Infinite supply. Amen? How do we get this life? You know, the, the, in, in John, it says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And I talked about the limitations of the English language earlier. And the word belief, if we think of belief as a philosophical kind of belief or a form of understanding of historical facts or agreement to some things that have occurred over time. But the word belief is so misleading in its English, but in its Greek, it's crystal clear. And this is, I took it straight out of a lexicon and this is what belief means in scripture. It means to put your trust in and commit all of your life to. That is what believing is. That's what believing looks like. It looks like commitment. It looks like putting all of your life to Him. It looks like following Him. Amen? Speaker John Mark Connor says this, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. By lifestyle, I mean the rhythms, the routines, and rituals of your life, who you spend your time with, what you commit to, your habits. And not just that, how you think. It's adopting Jesus' perspective on things. It's my belief that we get saved when we believe in Jesus, but we become transformed when we believe like Jesus. And the invitation of Jesus is, come follow me, come follow my way of life, so that you may experience the fullness of of life that I have to offer. In churches today, we have two distinct groups. And this is across the board, every church on the planet, we have two distinct groups. We have people who are professed believers. They believe in Jesus Christ. They've said the prayer. They believe in the doctrine. They come to church. They believe. But we have another group, and these are disciples. These are people who follow Jesus. These are people who take him at his, at his word, who make intentional attempts to bring what they've heard through his word into practice. Believers and disciples. And it's, it almost feels like today we have options in the church. Some of you can believe in Jesus philosophically, believe he's a historical figure, agree with doctrines, and some of you, the more passionate types, you can follow Jesus, you know, Maybe it will put you in leadership. And the truth is, you know, for, for some of us, you know, Jesus is almost re reduced to a historical figure, a good guy, a person who lived 2,000 over years ago. It's like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> I agree, Jesus existed. And I, I prayed a prayer. But catch this, you know, I, I said it earlier, that belief in Scripture, the word belief, it means to put your whole life to, to commit to. For the early church, there is no distinction between believing and following Jesus. It almost feels like if your belief does not lead to you following, does not lead to practical changes in your life, it almost empties meaning from your belief. And that's the church I, I want to you know, call us to as a church. It is not sufficient for you to simply believe. It's not sufficient for you to simply, I've said the prayer. It's not sufficient for you to sit here on a Sunday. 
But the life that we are called to live as Christ followers involves discipleship, involves being yoked to the commandments, to God involves obedience, involves submission, involves practical life changes, involves a process unto holiness. It is not sufficient for you to simply believe. We have to follow. We are all called to be disciples of Christ. Amen? For at least several decades, the church has not made discipleship a condition of being a Christian. One is not required to be or to intend to be a disciple in order to become a Christian. And one may remain a Christian without any signs of progress toward or in discipleship. Theologian Dallas Willard defines a disciple as such. The disciple is one who intent upon becoming Christ-like and so dwelling in his faith and practice systematically and progressively rearranges his affairs to that end. That's my sermon title for this week. Build this city. Rediscovering discipleship. Rediscovering discipleship. I believe that there's beauty, there's, there's, there's so much value in discipleship that we have not scratch the surface off. You know, we, we are only at the tip of the iceberg. There's so much in store for us as a church if we are willing to embark on this process. And some of you, you have had, you have had pain with this topic. You've had a past history of this topic. You know, it's something that is associated with a lot of negative memories. But I, I pray that through whatever I'm saying, you know, through community, that you will find healing and you will discover the value and the purpose that God has for your life through discipleship. Amen? This is really what the church is about, discipleship. You know, I had a visitor come through. Uh, he sat for two or three of our services, and he came up to me um, before he went back to his country and said, man, you guys teach really intense here. I was like, cool. Um, but, but, you know, I've almost taken that as like a badge of honor, you know, that we, we teach really intense here, you know, and... And I, I'm honestly really proud of it, you know, because we take the Word of God seriously. We take the Word of God seriously, you know. And the goal of our time together here, you know, of us reading from the Word, of us hearing from, you know, speakers and diving into God's Word is this, that we are charged to make attempts to elevate our lives to match the standards of Scripture. So often we lower the standards of Scripture or we sidestep or we glance past the commandments of Scripture and we lower the standards of God in order to feel better. But discipleship looks like a life adhered to, a life with intentionality that desires to be conformed into the image of God's Son. Am I making sense? And one of the charges I was given you know, when I took over a church was this. You know, um, PD said to me, Andre, we are not after building big churches, we are after building big people. And I, I was thinking to myself, you know, over the last few months, like, what is success, you know, when it comes to church life? What is success as, when it comes to my role as your pastor? And I think success is this. Success is that we build big people. We endeavor to raise up a company of people sold out for the cause of Christ, given to a relationship with Jesus, and who make intentional attempts in their life to be conformed into the image of the Son. That's the goal of the church. That's the goal of what, why we do what we do. That's the reason why we, we encourage every single person 
in the city to be a part of a life group because you can't do Christianity apart from community. Discipleship was meant to occur in the context of community. That's why we do what we do. And it's a disservice from me to you if I were to suggest to you that you can fully partake in this thing called Christianity and experience the fullness of life that God has intended for you to experience apart from community, apart from discipleship, apart from following Jesus. It's a disservice for me and you to suggest that there are levels of passion that we are all called and mandated to experience in our life. The scriptures, the, the commands of scriptures, they, they apply to us all. Amen? Not just to the passionate ones. This is not a matter of preference, it's a matter of eternity. I'll say that again, this is not a matter of preference, it's a matter of eternity. Now, I, I know I'm, I'm hounding on this, but this is so important. I'm, I'm going to keep talking about discipleship, okay? The word disciple occurs 269 times in the New Testament. 269. Christian is found only three times and was first introduced to refer precisely to disciples. The New Testament is a book about disciples, by disciples, and for disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's look at this famous passage of scripture, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. This is the goal of church, the goal of Christianity, this is the goal of our lives. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority, come on, if Jesus has all authority, who has no authority? The devil. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Come on, that's doctrine. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you to do. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The first goal Jesus set forth for the early church was to use his all-encompassing power and authority to make disciples. Having made disciples, these alone were to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And with this twofold preparation, they were to be taught to treasure and keep all things whosoever I have commanded you. But instead of Christ's plan, historically the church has some substituted it to look like making converts and baptizing them into church membership. This causes two great omissions from the Great Commission. First, we omit the making of disciples or enrolling people as Christ's students when we should let all else wait for that. Second, we omit the step of taking our converts through training that will bring them ever increasingly to do what Jesus directed. The two great omissions are connected. Not having made converts disciples, it is impossible for us to teach them how to live as Christ lived and taught. Historically, we have omitted the practice of making disciples from the Great Commission. That to me is, is how God defines success in the church. It's not about the quantity of people. It's not about the quality of the programs we, we bring I'd like to even suggest to you it's not about how many souls you get saved. Success is, it looks like how many people we turn into disciples. 
people who follow Jesus. Not just know about him, not just believe him philosophically, but follow him. Lifestyle. Making sense? Are you all with me? Come on. I'm taking you somewhere. This is all groundwork. Jesus was a lot of things. We know him best as the Son of God. Uh, Some will know him as the Messiah. That word means the long-awaited King of Israel and the world. Uh, some will know him as the Christ. How many of you know that Christ is not Jesus' last name? Yeah, Christ means the anointed one. Jesus, the anointed one. You know, it's not Mary and Joseph Christ. <clears throat> Boom. If you were a first century Jew, okay, living in Jesus' day, and you were in a synagogue, and Jesus came in the synagogue and began to teach in that day, chances are you would categorize Jesus as a rabbi. Everybody say rabbi. And a rabbi, okay, this, this is what rabbi is. A rabbi was a teacher who traveled from town to town with his yoke. And that was a first century euphemism for his set of teachings or way of reading the Torah, which is the Bible of his day. And that was who Jesus was, a young, brilliant rabbi, kind of an anti-status quo, rebellious kind of figure. He was a young, brilliant rabbi. Of the 90 or so times the scripture record of people interacting with Jesus. Upwards of 60 times, he is called rabbi or teacher. It was one of the primary ways they identified with the Messiah. You are a rabbi. You are our teacher. And this actually has a ton of implications into, uh, to the idea of practice of following or being a disciple of Jesus. Following Jesus today has almost become a cliche and has lost a ton of its meaning. You know, Through Instagram, following has taken a Different spin, a different... We understand it differently. You can follow a person without knowing a person. You have access to information about a person without any form of intimacy. We don't follow Jesus from far. We, we follow Him intimately. There was... Uh, I'm going to expound on what that word following means, but... Catch this, the practice of discipleship wasn't invented by Jesus. It existed long before Jesus came onto the scene. Plato, for example, was a disciple of Socrates. And the system of discipleship was very much a part of the Jewish culture. Discipleship okay, was the apex or the highest form of education for the Jewish people. There were three levels of Jewish edu- education. Allow me to you know, be a bit nerdy here and you know, make you smarter. Okay, there are three levels of Jewish education. The first level was a level called Beit Sefer. Everybody say Beit Sefer. And in this stage, Beit Sefer, you were taught to read, write, do math, and memorize the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. First five books. So think about it, okay? I know most of you don't carry your Bible here, but first five books of the Bible, just picture it. Take chunk pages. By the age of 12, you had to memorize all of that. All of that by the age of 12. That was the stage of Beit Sefer. And vast majorities of children, after they were done this, this, this stage, they were done with education. If you were a female, you would get ready to bear children by age 13 to 14. And the best of guests will progress onto the next level. I know we have not, you know, we've made attempts on you know, improving women's rights, but you no, know, hey, we've come a long way. <laughs> Imagine age 13, 14, like baby time, you know. It's like, Let us move on. And so, 
once they were done bait seven, and most of them were done at, at the stage, the best of the best will move on to this next stage called bait tamud. Bait tamud. And this uh, for boys from the age of 12 to 15, they will go on to memorize, catch this, all of the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament, man. Including like which pork you shouldn't eat, you know, and don't cut your hair, and oh man. And you know, yeah. Phenomenal. And they'll go on to memorize, you know, all of the Old Testament at, at this level called Beit Tamut. And the best of the very best, the best, the best, the best, best, the very best of this stage, they will progress on to a stage called Talmudim. This is what I want to camp. Talmudim. <laughs> Talmudim can mean student, follower, but more, most accurately is defined as disciple or apprentice. And the Talmudim, you know, um, he was an apprentice to the rabbi. He'll go through a vigorous interview process and if he thought, the rabbi thought that you had the smarts and the work ethic to become a rabbi one day, the rabbi will say unto you, come and be my Talmudim or come and follow me. A rabbi will turn to the best of the best. The summa cum laude, the magna cum laude, the first class honors, the best of the best and said, if he thought that you had the smarts and the work ethic to become a rabbi one day, he'll say, Come and follow me and be my Talmudin. And the Talmudins, okay, the disciples, the apprentices of a rabbi, they had three goals. Everybody say three goals. Come on, follow me. We are getting somewhere. Trudge along. First goal is this. He had to be with his rabbi, Talmudin. And discipleship was a 24-7 thing. It was not school. You don't clog out at 5 p.m. You travel, you ate, you slept where your rabbi slept. One Jewish blessing goes like this, no? may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. That's amazing. Very Star Wars, you know. I mean, you know that Star Wars came after the Bible, so, you know. Bible is good stuff, you know, read your Bible. Um, may you be covered in the dust of rabbi, come on. It was, it was a phenomenal blessing, a phenomenal privilege to be close to your rabbi. It was said that uh, the apprentices, you know, in their following of the rabbi, that it would be rare for a rabbi to see his own shadow because the apprentice was so close. That was beautiful. Talmudin's disciples, apprentices, they were called to be with their rabbi. The second thing they were called to do was to become like their rabbi. They will follow the rabbi's mannerisms, tone of voice, learn and bask under his rabbi's wisdom. Become like the rabbi. The last thing they were called to do was to do what their rabbi did. The final goal of the Talmudins, of the disciples, was to disciple others as they have been discipled. When the Talmudin was done with his training, he would be charged by his rabbi. Okay, now you go and you become a rabbi and you take Talmudins of your own and you disciple others as I have discipled you. To do what their rabbi did. Amen. I want to come, bring us back to our original point. And there's this, we're all called to discipleship. Amen? Yeah. All called to discipleship. Jesus is not looking for converts to Christianity. He's looking for disciples, apprentices, apprentices in the kingdom of God. Yeah. The fact that we are allowed to be a disciple of Jesus is staggering. Think about that. The Jewish boys, they had to go through so many levels of trainings, interviews, processes in order to qualify to even apply it to be a disciple or Talmudin. 
But today, that invitation is extended to all. You get to be a Talmudin. You get to be with the greatest rabbi that ever existed. Rabbi of all rabbis. Write a song about that. You know, we, we, we know that uh, there's a passage of scripture when, when Jesus uh, invites the disciples, uh, the people to be his disciples. He said this, Hey, you are fishermen, but I will make you fishers of men. And we, we, we often look at that passage and go, Wow, Jesus is so punny, man. Wow, look at the way he, woo, woo, to his end. It's like, man, brilliant Jesus. And you, you almost see like, wow, this is a glimpse into like, Jesus' sense of humor. He's a pun guy, you know. <laughs> Well, I like to burst that bubble. Um, the term fishes of men was actually a popular Jewish idiom. And fishes of men would mean to the people of day, like, you are, if, if I were to say to you, like, hey, you are a fisher of men, it would mean that you are a great teacher because you've captured the hearts and minds of men. And so Jesus was saying to these fishermen who had no education, who weren't trained in synagogue, hey, you, you are fishermen, but I will make you into great teachers. I'll make you like me. I will turn you into rabbis, into people who disciple others. I will cause you to capture the hearts and minds of men. He gave that invitation to the disciples. Contextually, if you look at it, it's almost like, you know, if you, know, you, you get a call from Harvard University and they're like, hey, we're going to give you a full ride scholarship. You know, maybe you have not done uni at all, like you don't have a diploma, like I don't have a diploma, I don't have a uni. No matter, just come on board and come to Harvard and I will teach you all that I know. Staggering. Staggering. Are you all with me? In 1937, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor and spy, great, great guy, gave the world his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Book. It was a masterful attack on easy Christianity or cheap grace in the context of mid-20th century Europe and America, but it did not succeed in setting aside. Perhaps it even enforced the view of discipleship as a costly spiritual access. And only for those especially driven or called to it, it was right and good for of Bonhoeffer to point out that one cannot be a disciple of Christ without forfeiting things normally sought in human life. But the cost of non-discipleship is far greater. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace. It costs you a life penetrated throughout by love. It costs you faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good. Hopefulness that stands firm in the midst of the most discouraging of circumstances. Power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, non-discipleship costs you exactly that abundance of life that Jesus said he came to offer the cost of non-discipleship is far greater. Let's put up the, the next slide. And this is a, it's a set of quotes from a man named A.W. Tozer, one of my favorites. He says this, a notable heresy has come into being throughout evangelical Christian circles. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need Him as Savior and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to Him as Lord as long as we want to. It's a heresy. Salvation apart from obedience is unknown in the sacred scripture. This heresy has created the impression that it's quite reasonable to be a vampire Christian. 
Next slide. One, in effect, says to Jesus, I like a little of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven? But can we really imagine that this is an approach that Jesus finds acceptable? Snap, Tozer. <laughs> In closing, I'd like to outline three goals or pursuits of the life of a Christian, a disciple, the church. This is what we endeavor to do to grow in as a church. And this is what I am saying now that will map out all that we do, every sermon that's preached from the pulpit, all our endeavors, every program that we do until these three grows, goals. And this is almost an inconclusive ending, a foretaste, something we will continue to expand on for the foreseeable future. The first goal of the church of our lives as Christians is this, to be with Jesus. Jesus calls this abiding in the vine. Paul calls this prayer without ceasing. Brother Lawrence, a Parisian monk, came from a wealthy family, calls this the practice the presence. The practice of the presence. Let's have a quote from Brother Lawrence. You can call me Brother Andre. <laughs> rather this than pass. Uh, the time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer and in the noise and clutter of my kitchen while several persons are at the same time calling for different things. I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacrament. Even in the midst of the hustleness, the busyness of life, I find God. What does it mean to be with Jesus? It means a whole life oriented to the reality of God that's all around you. It's to continually have your mind turn back to God. Think of it as like a compass always returning to due north. That's what it means to be with Jesus. And we don't get there, you know, just because we want it. It requires practice. It requires time. If I were to lift my own body weight later, I would die. But if I were to go to the gym, as I should, now TC is back, he can bring me, <laughs> I will get there. It takes practice, it takes time. Yeah. How do you be with Jesus to experience the life of Jesus? We have to begin to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus, to adopt his practices, or we commonly understand it as spiritual disciplines. But because discipline is such a bad word these days, I call it spiritual practices. <laughs> There's some observation about Jesus' lifestyle from the scripture, these are some of the things he practiced. He was never in a rush. He was always unhurried. He had community. He was a student of the word. He spent time alone. The Bible says that he slipped away from his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane to process his feelings with God. He had silence and solitude. Some of you just need to shut up from time to time and just be quiet. He rested, he prayed. He rested, he prayed, you know. Mother Teresa, in, in a TV interview, uh, when a reporter was just asking Mother Teresa, like, um, what do you say to God when um, you pray? And Mother Teresa looks at him and said, uh, I don't say anything, I listen. Then the reporter follows up with a question like, what does God say when you pray, uh, when you listen? And Mother Teresa says, um, he doesn't say anything, he listens. Perhaps the key is just shutting up, you know. <laughs> but the truth is this, you know, most often our prayer life looks like this. You know, it looks like 
like, hey God, uh, here are some of the things that I need to get done in my life. Here are some of the breakthroughs that I'm processing. Uh, so I need this done, I need this done, I need this done. Uh, okay, my five minutes of prayer time is up. Do you have anything to say? Nope. Okay, thank you. It's a good time. <laughs> Our prayer lives look hurried. They look like it's based on a set of tasks. God almost is like a vending machine that you get like stuff out of instead of a person that you can intimately know. He was in a hurry. He had Sabbath. What does that mean for you and me? It means rest. In our modern context, it means coming to church. Let's let that sit in. He was at peace. He had peace, you know, which was not the absence of conflict or struggle, but it was the presence of a person. Psalms 46 verse 10 says this, that be still and know that I am God. The key to knowing God is found in stillness, quietness and solitude. Rest in meditation. To be with Jesus, to carve out time, set aside time to be with Him. There were 100,000 people polled and this uh, was the middle of the bell curve. And the, the survey goes like, uh, it was about uh, usage of smartphones. Now of 100,000 people poll, and this is the middle of the bell curve, average. Person would average, uh, would on an average, touch or swipe their phones 2,617 times a day. On an average. This is middle of the bell curve, okay? Which will total a, a, a staggering amount of 76 sessions on the phone. So 76 times. 76 sessions. And this will lead to a total of 145 minutes a day on their phone. And those on the heavier side of things, it was twice the amount. It's 4,000 times they swipe their phone. You might be asking a question, why am I not at peace? Why am I not at rest? Why am I not experiencing God? Maybe <laughs> it's because you've been preoccupied with, with this. And you've allowed yourself to be fed with the junk of the internet and maybe uh, you know, work is just coming at you left, right, center. Can I just encourage us to do this? You know, I, I know um, these days Bibles are very heavy, you know. <laughs> so heavy. Um, and we, we use our Bibles and phone. And I don't, I don't fault you for that, but just, just a suggestion, okay? I know for a fact that you cannot be possibly fully here if you use your phone as your Bible. Because you get texts, you get tempted to scroll, you get tempted to go on the menu page and get out and look at different things. But how about, okay, for your life, for the sake of you being with Jesus, experiencing stillness, you set down your precious phone for 45 minutes and just experience the Word of God. Or, no, you take time at night, just before you sleep, 45 minutes, put it down. Be still, solitude, experience God. I know you can find God on the internet. I'm not faulting you for that, you know. Good chunk of this stuff comes on the internet. <laughs> but there's something about stillness that we have lost the art of, of understanding. Can I just suggest to you, you know, for, for our time together, put your phone down. I have the scriptures up anyway. <laughs> Most of you don't look at your Bible on the phone. Let's discover God in stillness. Amen. And for goodness sake, when you go out with a person and you have lunch and coffee, put your phone face down. You know, that's basic manners. 
It says to a person, you are more important than, than this. It communicates value. I know, off topic. But if you catch me doing that, you know, just slap me or something. <laughs> How do you be with Jesus? You simplify your life down. Catch this. You simplify your life down to what really matters, slowly cutting down all the extra unnecessary activities and gradually add in the practices of Jesus. Be with Jesus. Amen? It's our goal to, to, as a church to be with Jesus. Not just hear about Him, just know about it, but we be with Jesus. The pursuit of being with Jesus doesn't just stop with us, but it is extended in our invitation to others to partake of the same privilege. Amen? Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person on planet of every human being was designed to flourish, to thrive in the glory of God. Everyone wants a king like Jesus. The Bible says that he is the, desi- the desire of the nations. Everyone wants Jesus. And it's our role to offer him, to allow people to be with him. Second goal is to become like Jesus. I know these are very simp- simple things, but We've often lost, you know, these things are in, in, in our hurry, in our all-knowingness. We are called to simply become like Jesus. Romans 8.29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is staggering to you and me because it says that God longs for us to be like Him. Instead of making Himself unattainable and distancing Himself as, I am a God figure, He makes His very personhood accessible to you and me. He makes holiness accessible. Jesus even says in the Gospel, be holy as I am holy. There's so much in the heart of God that we become like Him. The promise of New Testament is nothing short of a full-on transformation, but so many of us feel a disconnect between that promise and our reality. Is change really possible? The answer is yes, but the odds are it's not what you think. To become like Jesus, you must be increasingly possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus. Allow yourselves to be transformed from the inside out as you work to become like Jesus. We don't become like Jesus through osmosis. We become like Jesus through intentional efforts, through lifestyle changes, through cutting away the unnecessary and adding on the attributes, the traits of God. That's why we talk about forgiveness, integrity, joy, and honor. Let's look at this quote by Dallas Willard. I know, this is the third time I quote in. This sermon is brought to you by Dallas Willard. (laughs) Spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by such character traits as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher, from the inward character, the deeds of love, then naturally, but supernaturally and transparently flow. That's amazing. How many remember the WWJD bracelets? Yeah. Man, maybe we need to bring an updated version of that back. No. It used to be really popular. But what does that mean? It means that, you know, it, what would Jesus do? It, if I were to put it into our context, it would mean, what would Jesus do if he were me in this situation? I think sometimes, you know, we need to just go back to that train of thought. 
in the face of decision-making, in the face of conflict, we think, what would Jesus do if he were me in this situation? If he were a, a businessman in this situation, if he were a doctor in this, in this situation, if he were a professional in this situation, what would he do? You'll find that Jesus is a lot smarter than you think it is. <laughs> what does it mean for you and me? It means that we have to make efforts to rid every form of sinful, dysfunctional behavior in our lives. It means that sometimes you'll be on the receiving end of tough conversations from the Lord or from people. And oftentimes, you won't do what is naturally occurring, convenient, or instinctive to you. I'd like to read you a, a, a post that I did on Facebook. Yes, I'm on Facebook. Um, and, and this, I was just writing an article about uh, pastors and people and their interaction. I wrote this, many pastors and churches today get accused of being legalistic and by extension religious because they enforce certain practices and hold their people to a certain code of conduct. The implication is, if what I'm told to do isn't naturally occurring to me, convenient or, con or comfortable, that equates to religiosity. We must understand that there's a difference between legalism and discipline. Legalism can look like an excessive adherence to the law. It thrives outside of rationale and relationship. Do this because it has always been done this way. Do it because I'm in charge and I said so. It is adhered to in response to the avoidance of consequence. Discipline is vastly different. True Christian discipline occurs in an environment of discipleship. That would mean people understand the reasoning behind certain practices and are in agreement with like-minded people who keep them on track and accountable. Discipline is done so in response to vision. Pastors, don't just be preoccupied with enforcing the what. Help people understand the why by giving them context and reasoning for practices. Give, get people on board with a vision before you hold them accountable to a mission. By pastors, I mean leaders as well. You know, all of you are leaders in your own right. People, just because it is uncomfortable, it does not make it legalistic. Remember that we are called to disciple and be disciple. That will mean that we won't always get our way and will often be compelled to do what isn't naturally occurring to us. It is in discomfort that true growth and Christian maturity happen. You won't always get your way. That's what I'm trying to say. <clears throat> Last goal of the church is this. To do the works of Jesus. To do the works of Jesus. I'd like to share with you a couple of scriptures. John 10. It goes, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Matthew 10, verse 5, it says this. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. That's what gives us evidence that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, uh, as, as a pastor and as a Christian, um, I, I've, I've seen you know, many people go through this process of like, what's my purpose in life? What's my purpose in life? What am I called to do? Am I called to be married? Am I called to be single? Am I supposed to teach? Am I supposed to drive Uber? You know, and they, they, they go through... <laughs> They go through all this, this, this process. Every five years, they go like, well, what am I supposed to do in my life? What am I supposed to do in my life? Nothing wrong with that. You know? Nothing wrong with seeking God for uh, purpose, mission, and mandate in your life. But you know, Scripture gives a purpose for your life. 
Scripture has given you a mandate for your life. Scripture has given you a mission for your life. Sometimes you just want the tailored one <laughs> while ignoring the apparent. How can you be trusted in much if you're not faithful with little? How can you be trusted with the unseen if you're not faithful with the apparent? What's our purpose in life? Ta-da! Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely receive, freely give. Am I called to be a teacher or am I called to be an engineer? Pick one. Then, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely receive, freely give. Am I called to be single, celibate? Am I called to be married with five kids? Pick one. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely receive, freely give. Am I called to be in ministry or am I called to be in the secular? Pick one. Then, it's the purpose of the church. And church is definition. It's all of y'all. Not just me, the guy in pink. <laughs> it's all of us. You're all called to do the stuff. I'm excited to say in July, you know, at the end of July, we'll embark on a series on miracles. Yes, I'm super excited. I think I might call it I Believe in Miracles. <laughs> if you connected that, like, where are you from? Uh, <coughs> And my goal is to raise and equip you to demonstrate and release the power of God every day. Every day. I don't want to be you, but how many of you are just sick and tired of people suffering from infirmity? How many of you are just sick and tired of people stuck in hopeless situations? How many of you are just sick and tired of seeing people God break through? If they can't find the answer here, where can they find it? I believe that we can be light in the midst of darkness. What does it mean for you and me? It means that we take risks. We pray fervently and with faith even in the face of unchanging circumstance and we do not falter when there's setback, loss or tragedy. We rise in hope again. And to end this sermon, I'd like to unveil our passion statement. This is what we burn for. And to do this, we exist to help all people be with Jesus, become like Jesus and do the works of Jesus in our city. All encompassing. Uh. <laughs> this is what it means to build with Jesus as our cornerstone. This is what we are building the church upon. Christ as our cornerstone. <clears throat> you know, in closing, uh, I just, just like to, to say this, you know. Um, uh, last year, I, I went to an onsen place and saw things that I should never see. Um, but the, the onsen place was like far out, man. So it required like a flight in and then you had to take a, a train in and then you had to take like a minibus into the, the onsen place. So there was like, like you no know, few modes of transportation. What am I saying? This, this new one is great. But it does not... Uh, it does not take away value from what we had in the past. This is a vehicle change. <laughs> We're changing the vehicles because we need to change vehicles sometimes to get to where God has called us to go. What am I saying? You know, there might be a day, a few years down the road, God willing, that this might change and we might change to another vehicle. But we, we are okay. We are okay with shifting and changing, moving and partaking the rhythms of God, God's grace and the river of His Spirit. This is a vehicle change. And this is what we are called to embrace and hold on to 
for the next season of this church's life. It's interesting to end a series with what almost feels like a start point, and that's what this is. For the foreseeable future, every teaching that comes from this pulpit will be centered on one of those three points. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do the works of Jesus. And in doing so, we get built up in faith, and by extension, the church gets built up. And the Bible says that when the church is built, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Let's build this city.